would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Um, when I give you a little background of Isaiah, uh, look at the title page before we move along. From Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, there is almost a word-for-word correlation to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. They uh, go very much uh, closer together, and um, they cover the same amount of material. There's a lot of people that wonder who came first, Isaiah or Micah, but if you consider the fact that both of these prophets are reporting the word of the Lord uh, without necessarily denying uh, Isaiah, probably uh, his original, uh, God has spoken to both of them to communicate um, his message to Israel. And part of what we find here in these first four or five chapters of Isaiah is really a a prelude, an overview of the entire prophecy. And beginning in chapter 6 is actually where Isaiah reports his call, that famous passage when he is in the house on the Lord's day and he sees the Lord. And he has this marvelous experience as God says, uh, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord, send me. That's actually the, the beginning of his call and the forward flow of his prophecy. And so as he compiles the written record of the prophecy, he gives us these first five chapters as sort of a prelude or an overview. And so when we we look at them together, uh, we see a lot of similarities. I'm going to read the Isaiah passage um, in verse chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for the law of the Lord will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob." Let us walk in the light of the Lord. If you look in the Micah passage, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. So if you can imagine, get this vision in your eye 
of Jerusalem and the mountain of the temple of the Lord standing out on the plains and all the nations moving toward it, streaming toward it, migrating toward it as they come to witness the glory of God. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways that we may walk in His paths. How contrary to what we see today. As more and more the Christianity is being rejected and ostracized and ridiculed and in some cases uh, hostily uh, opposed. And yet in that day the nations will say, let us go and learn of God. Let's hear His Word. Let's go see what the Lord has to say. That we can walk in His paths. Uh, What a dramatic transformation. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the Word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords to plowshares, their spears to pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Isn't that a marvelous picture? They don't even have to worry about a walled yard or the enclosure of a house but they can sit under the vine or the fig tree without any fear whatsoever, you know. Today we lock our doors, we lock our cars. Uh, Some of us have alarm systems. Uh, We prepare to uh, oppose any kind of threat to our lives. We're concerned about uh, being aware of everything around us. Uh, There's a certain kind of vigilance that people take. Uh, No one enjoys walking to their car in the dark uh, in a parking lot. Uh, There's concern about that. But in those days, uh, people will be able to sit out in the open uh, day or night and not be afraid at all, not have any concern that anyone will harm them. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And uh, I'm going to move down to the fifth slide, number one. I want to look at the uh, outline that I gave you. Now, I, I left that blank on purpose because I wanted some interaction there. You can make notes however you wish. But at the end of the age, there will be a cataclysmic conclusion. You know, it's uh, it's an amazing thing that's going to happen. Uh, How is it that all the nations of the earth are going to see the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of Zion, the place of the temple in Jerusalem, How are they going to see that? If you look now, uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by hills. 
And uh, the the uh, Jordan River Valley is way down below Jerusalem. And if you're down in the bottom there, you can't see Jerusalem. And uh, around in various places, there are visual obstruction. So what is going to happen in the last days that's going to make a difference? Well, look with me just for a moment to catch a preview of Isaiah 66, verse, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says that at the end of the age, and this is after the seven years of great tribulation, when Antichrist has been in power, the first three and a half years are running pretty well because he brings all the nations together and solves many of the problems. But soon things run afoul. And uh, God begins to judge those who have followed the um, ways of Antichrist. And so those last three and a half years are horrible, horrible times. And the nations of the world, no surprise here, will hate Israel. They will absolutely hate Israel. They will view Israel as a source of many of their problems because they will see them as the representatives of God, whom is the enemy of Antichrist. Now, whether they acknowledge that or not, that's what's going on uh, in the hearts of, of people as Antichrist stirs up this militant anti-Semitism. And so the scripture says, at the end of that tribulation period, in a final showdown, all the nations, all the armies, will gather against Jerusalem and against Judah. And they will lay siege against it. And the city of Jerusalem will be surrounded by all the nations of the world, and their intent is to fully annihilate the Jewish people. That's their goal. In Isaiah 66, we're told how that turns out. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. In fact, Revelation tells us that in the valley of Megiddo, the the, um, amount of destruction of the armies will be such that the blood that flows will be up to the shoulder quarters of the horse. Uh, That is a, a gruesome image. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one another in the center 
who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice will come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. A time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and they will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan. To the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Now, what's actually happening here is we're still experiencing a diaspora. There are as many Jews in New York as there are in Israel. Um, they're still scattered all over the face of the world. But in those days when God has demonstrated his mighty power against the nations uh, in their brokenness and, and repentant state, they will actually bring the Jewish people home. They will convey them back to Jerusalem uh, not as um, outcasts, but as honored people. They will restore them. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath, and all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. They will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be made an abhorrence to all mankind. There is a forecasting of the same terminology that Jesus uses to describe hell. The place where the worm does not die. Uh, the place where the fire is never quenched. These people who die in rebellion to Christ will find themselves in a place of eternal judgment that uh, they will never experience any respite or lessening of their punishment. But throughout all eternity... They will remember, even as they suffer, how they have opposed the Lord. And then if you look in Zechariah 14, 4 through 10, another very fascinating passage. This speaks of when Jesus returns. Verse 4, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a large valley, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. 
you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half toward the east and eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. And it will flow in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And look at verse 10. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Remnon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. In other words, As Jesus returns and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, he will return with a dramatic earthquake. And it will change the topography of the whole region. And all of the mountains and all of the hills around will be flattened out. Uh, Isaiah tells us that every uh, valley will be raised and every high place will be made low. And all of it will be flattened out. But Mount Zion and Jerusalem and the temple will rise up. And you say, how can people see it? Well, there won't be anything in the way. Uh, The whole uh, topography of the area has been transformed so that Jerusalem rises above everything around it. Now, when you think about it, and I'm going to be moving in this direction in a moment. But when you think about it, in the early days of the earth, before the flood, we did not have the high mountains. We did not have the the dramatic, uh, craggy kind of terrain that we have now. You fly over the southwestern United States, and if you fly over the Grand Canyon or over some of the Great Basin there, and and you can see how the water gathered and then flowed out toward the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it is so obvious what was going on. And the upthrusting, it's interesting as you look at the rock formation Uh, of many of the mountains that's more obvious in the West because they were raised up rather cataclysmically. And the sedimentary rock is on an angle like this. You know, it's it's not flat like it was uh, stacked at the bottom of of the water. It's on this angle as if it were pushed up out of the earth. Well, in the day of Jesus' return, he's going to do just the opposite. He's going to flatten everything back down. And only Jerusalem is going to stand and rise above all the terrain around it. And God will reshape uh, 
the whole uh, form and, and uh, landscape of the planet. It'll be a day when the moon is dark and the sun is dark. And there is a tremendous change that takes place as the earth itself shakes and trembles with His coming. And He will establish Himself uh, in Jerusalem. Isaiah asked the question in Isaiah chapter 60, Can a people be born in a single day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And the answer to that question is, yes, it can. Uh, the Lord Jesus will appear. And, uh, and Zechariah says, they will see him whom they have pierced and believe. Uh, there is no evidence in Scripture that I can find that says the Jewish people will gradually turn back to uh, their Messiah throughout the tribulation. Uh, there, there is a uh, theology that looks at the Scripture and says the Holy Spirit will be taken away and uh, people will have to come back through sacrifice and whatever. And there's no evidence for that. People are never saved without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always been here. He is the one who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and convinces them of Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people remain hard of heart until this day when all the nations surround it to destroy it. And they're in their 11th hour and it looks like they're not going to survive. And they're under siege. And there's no way out. And suddenly, He appears. And all of His holy ones with Him. Both Zechariah and Daniel tell us this. Who are the holy ones? Well, guess what? <laughs> what are you called in the New Testament? Holy ones, the saints of the Lord. We appear with Him. And they see Him whom they've pierced, and all of a sudden their eyes are opened. And they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And in the blink of an eye, this whole nation is converted. And Jesus plants His feet on the Mount of Olives as everything shifts and changes and the glory of the Lord shines around it. The end of the age will be cataclysmic indeed. In Isaiah uh, chapter 2 verse 3, he also talks about the reunification of the peoples of the earth. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Remember in Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9, is the uh, story of the Tower of Babel and the plains of Shinar. As all the people came together and said, let's build this big tower. And let's build it up to the heavens. It was actually a way of false worship, by the way, not just simply a tower. 
let's build it up to the heavens and let's make sure that we stay together and that we speak the same uh, ideas and we communicate uh, openly and we do so in order to advance ourselves. Humanism is not new. <laughs> it's been around virtually since the beginning. And the idea is to see what they could accomplish if they work together. And God looks at them and says, if we let them do this, there's nothing they won't be able to do. God gave us amazing minds. And when you put a bunch of people with amazing minds together, they do amazing things. They don't necessarily recognize that God has made the way for it to happen, but they do use that blessing of the Lord actually to oppose Him in many cases, or to deny Him while they're using His gifts. It's really quite remarkable. But in the return of the Lord, there is a reversal of Babel. As God brought confusion and a divergence of language in order that they would be driven apart naturally because they couldn't talk to each other anymore. In the end of time, he will restore the same language. People ask, what are we going to speak in heaven? I don't know, but we're all going to speak the same thing. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know that it'll be English or Chinese or Russian or Hebrew or Greek or it, who knows. It may not be any of those things. You know, language is just a way of phonating, articulating the thoughts in our minds. And however God puts it together, we will all be able to communicate our thoughts truly one to the other. Won't that be an amazing thing? You know what the biggest problem people have now? They don't know what they're saying to each other. If you look at marriages that are in trouble, do you know what the number one problem is? It's communication. Money and sex always get mixed in there, but that's not the problem. That's a symptom. The problem is communication. We don't know what we're saying to each other, even when we speak the same language in, in the home. It's like, we don't get it. You know? And so, people are just naturally that way. How can I give you my thoughts exactly? I can't. I look for ways. I develop a vocabulary. I try to find ways to express myself. I'm very verbal. That's, that's one of my characteristics. I talk a lot in certain situations. I usually keep my mouth shut at home, but that's, <laughs> that's there's other reasons for that. There are people who talk more. Don't you dare tell me. Uh, but um, 
we have a hard time expressing what's going on up here. But when Jesus brings us all together, we will truly communicate the mind and heart one to the other. And God will reunify the people in one language. You see what's happening? We're moving back in time to His original design. We're going back to a unity and language of understanding. In Isaiah 2.4, there is going to be a reign of peace. And He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Can you imagine how prosperous nations would be if they needed no military? If they didn't have to spend a penny on warplanes and warships and artillery and the massive amounts of women and men that form the the core of the army and marines and air force navy i know they're part of the marines are all together actually the marines are part of the navy got to be careful how i say that if you're one or the other but if nations did not have to spend a penny on the military, how much more would we have? Our taxes could probably be cut in half in the blink of an eye because of so many things that go into that. Besides that, we wouldn't be buying $600 hammers. And so... You have this amazing turnaround. As all the nations destroy their weapons of war and take the scrap and turn it into implements of produce and harvest and farming. And why farming? Is it just because Isaiah's people we're an agrarian culture and we're used to farming. I have a feeling that by the time Jesus gets back here, there is not going to be much of an infrastructure left. I don't think we're going to have all the automation and all the stuff that's going on now. I think it will pretty well be dissolved. You know, God made us and put us in a garden to begin with. Because when you get down to, to it, a garden is a peaceful place. It's a joyful place. And, and particularly when it's not only filled with beauty, but with good things to eat. It's a marvelous place to be. And... I think at the end of time, when Jesus returns, there will be far more agriculture than we have now as we come into a land of peace. And by the way, 
we won't be such meat eaters because in the reign of Jesus, nothing dies, at least not at a very young age. And originally, before the flood, people did not eat meat. And after the return of Christ in the millennial reign, we're going to go back to this very healthy diet. It's a restoration of productivity, blessing, and peace, moving us back toward Eden. I want you to understand that part of God's design and intent is to recover what was lost. Redemption in its fullest sense restores what was broken and damaged. And so in the end of time, God is going to restore the Edenic paradise that he originally created. And we're going to be co-regents with him as all the peoples of the earth rejoin that wonderful place of peace and tranquility and glory and beauty. And as the next segment says, verse 5, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And Isaiah 60 tells us that the Lord Himself will be the light of that day. That we will literally walk in His light. Jonathan uh, came home yesterday and we were having a conversation. We went out to lunch together and we were chatting and um, he was talking about uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and approaching the speed of light. And as you move closer toward the speed of light, time seems to slow. And when you arrive at the speed of light, time stops in terms of, uh, of a linear system. And so he posed a fascinating question. He said, what would the source of all light be in that theory? And of course, that's God. He is the light of the world. And God is timeless. There is no yesterday or tomorrow. Yes, He lives with us in the passage of our time, but He Himself is not subject to the measurement and marking of the years. God reigns above them as the timeless one. And He is light. And what was the very beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uh, without form and void. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In other words, let that which emanates from me pour forth upon the earth, 
and bring it illumination. That was three days before the sun was made. And in the end of time, the sun will not be needed, neither will the moon, for he himself will be the light of that millennial day. And everything will be illuminated by his presence. Won't that be a grand moment? And so Isaiah gives us this marvelous introduction by giving us a glimpse of the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ before he takes us abruptly in the next verse back to the present moment of his time, which is not very nice and reminds Israel of how wayward Judah and Jerusalem have become as he takes us through a couple of chapters of their fall and coming destruction. And then when he has done that, he closes the prologue to the book and he tells us about his call. And how God spoke to him. It's interesting that he says in verse 1. That uh, this is what Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah didn't just hear the word. He saw the word. This was a panoramic vision God gave to him with explanation. This is literally what is coming in the last days. And that's the only time Isaiah ever uses that phrase, the last days. And the last days are uniquely attributed to the end times in prophecy. They always refer to the end of the age. And so Isaiah is saying, I saw the end of the age. And I saw the word of God. And here's the picture that he painted for me. Don't we have something wonderful to look forward to? You know, we, we don't just die and go to the dust and that's the end. We go into the presence of Jesus, and at the appointed time, the trumpet sounds, and we return with him to reign with him in that glorious day. And if we're alive, it is coming. We're caught up together with those of us who have gone before to meet the Lord in the air, returning with him to Zion. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What, a, what an amazing time awaits us. Lord Jesus, we give you praise. You are our Savior, our Redeemer, our coming King. We thank you. And we pray that we would be diligent to work. For the night is coming when our work is done. And not work in our own power, but in your strength, in the might of the Lord, 
that in the power of the Holy Spirit we might be vessels pointing the way back home to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.